We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I wanted to jump in quickly and let you know about the release of the audio version of my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, narrated by David A. Knesser. If you want to support the show, you can buy it wherever audiobooks are sold. Links are also in the show notes. Now, on to my guest for today, Cody Simmons, CEO at Dermasensor, a health technology company in Miami focused on helping support clinical decisions around skin cancer. Disclaimer, the Dermasensor device is currently CE marked and is also registered and available for sale in Australia and in New Zealand. It is investigational and not currently approved or available for sale in the U.S. Cody comes from a family dedicated to helping others, and he sees his work with Dermasensor as helping people in a big way. After studying bioengineering and business at Brown, he did graduate work at Stanford and followed his interests in science and business by working for various companies and cultivating his leadership skills at a large established company. His role at Dermasensor is to oversee bringing a product to market that will help primary care providers detect skin cancer. This, Cody explains, will save thousands of lives, as currently many people with skin cancer are either misdiagnosed 
or do not follow up with the specialist. By making the detection of possible skin cancer easier and more accessible, Dermasensor is poised to help more people find out earlier whether they have cancer, making a huge difference in mortality and the quality of life for many skin cancer patients. As CEO of a medical device company, Cody has a lot resting on his shoulders, from overseeing product development to pursuing funding opportunities. He says that his experiences as a competitive tennis player, in addition to his motivation to help people, has taught him to pick himself up and keep going when things get rough. Now, let's get better together. Cody Simmons, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited uh, excited to speak with you today. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you're doing like a hardware startup in medical device, like the hardest of the hardest of the hardest thing to do. <laughs> I can't think of a harder thing other than maybe sending a rocket to the moon. Maybe it's a lot a little harder. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think uh, Elon and SpaceX and and some of those did, <laughs> definitely harder. But uh, yeah, we we uh, they say hardware is hard, and we were hoping to be an exception to that. But but like you said, especially medical devices, uh, it, it has been uh, qu- quite quite a uh, uh, involved journey, I'll say. Yeah. 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 And we'll, we'll get into that. You know, you're the CEO of Dermasensor and um, really cool thing and really hitting a huge need in the marketplace. And we're just going to see more and more of this sort of stuff, this, you know, medical device consumer type things that are just getting pushed farther and farther to what I call the edge of where people can actually do diagnostics and stuff. But, you know, before we jump all into that, as I like to always say, uh, tell me how you got to do uh, what you're doing today. Sure, sure. Well, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll take a step back and, and kind of at a high level, um, you know, what, what kind of got me in the field of life sciences and, and sort of new healthcare technologies generally is um, all my uh, immediate family. So both my parents and two sisters have all spent their careers uh, in some form of education and people development. Uh, one sister is a professor of biomechanical engineering. Um, so, you know, kind of having one's career focused on helping others uh, is really the norm for my family and what I always grew up around. And and so, you know, uh, uh, that kind of applied to me and, and I guess in my innate mindset to, to, to at least some degree. Uh, and I'd say my academic interest, so led me uh, to life sciences, as happened with and so uh, bioengineering and also business um, background and also, you know, with the startup interest from half a dozen internships and startup experiences as a, as an undergraduate, um, was like, okay, you know, that this, not just the health sciences, but, but actually kind of commercializing new technologies, uh, uh, whether they're at a larger company or a startup is really kind of where I, where I think, uh, uh, my career should be spent, you know, and that's, uh, uh so after graduate research at, at Stanford and in, in a biomaterials lab, um, you know, that, that's kind of what I, I knew I wanted to do work full time, bringing new, uh, health technologies and new, new health products, uh, uh, to people. And, and like you said, it's, it's not always easy in, in the medical field for good reason. Um, you know, you, you got to make sure whatever you're developing is safe and effective and, and, you know, going to do more, more good than harm. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I kind of, or, um, first, Instead of jumping straight into startup, though, you know, because it is such a 
uh, intensely regulated fields and the, the capital requirements for developing new drugs and devices are so high, um, kind of wanted to first sort of get a strong foundation in, in this world. And so I spent my first few years at Genentech, which is the world's largest uh, oncology uh, biopharmaceutical company. Yep, I am um, very familiar with that. They are literally 15 miles from where I live and we're a couple of miles from a company I worked at called Ion Torrent that was doing DNA sequencing machines. So, Oh, yeah, the DNA. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so after Palo Alto, it was in San Francisco at Genentech for four years. So I did a two-year leadership development program there um, where I had a, a one operational uh, uh, role, two business development ones, and then a commercial strategy uh, role. And that, that last commercial strategy role is where I stayed uh, for a couple of years, actually. So it was an, a U.S. Um, commercial pricing and contracting strategy, um, which was very interesting and, and very high profile, right? Being, being in charge of uh, the prices of the world's largest cancer drugs, um, you know, uh, uh, was, was, like I said, very, you know, interesting to, to the kind of academic and, and analytical side of me and also, you know, very impactful in thinking through access and whatnot. Um, but, you know, being part of such kind of a, a huge behemoth company, I was kind of itching to, to get back to what I'd done kind of part-time during undergrad and graduate school um, of more of the startup creation side of things. I think it was kind of the, the engineer uh, in me that was kind of itching to, to do a bit more, um, you know, creating and building. Um, and so I joined a small startup uh, called Digisite Technologies um, that had a basically had, had consumer and physician use tools for ophthalmic diseases, specifically retina diseases that, that cause blindness. Um, so they had a, a, a mobile um, visual acuity test. So like the little triangle chart, you know, in a doctor's office when you cover one eye. So they basically had a mobile version of that. So on an app or phone. Um, and also a ophthalmic camera attachment on a smartphone or tablet for frontline providers. You know, you can imagine an ER doctor, um, you know, capturing a quick photo and uploading it, sharing it with an ophthalmologist instead of calling the ophthalmologist to come into the ER in the middle of the night. Um, so those were kind of the, the couple products uh, they're working on. I, I joined uh, uh, right a, a, around them raising a $9 million financing. And so, you know, kind of went through that startup of a, or process of okay, a five-person startup and kind of growing with them and, and seeing how that evolves and, and the different departments develop and getting first revenue. And so that that was kind of a great experience. Um and uh after some time there where and actually the company was considering and ended up doing and, and pulling off a major uh a pivot to become purely a health data company and they rebranded to Verana. Um, you know, I, I wanted to stick a bit more in the kind of the medical device field um and so joined a company called dermasensor which is my current company and so so um i'm the uh it's a bit of a unique founding story i'm the operational co-founder and have two um kind of founding investors uh, dr maurice Ferre and chris dewey um, so they started the company in 2009 uh maurice uh is a very successful uh, medical device entrepreneur who um uh orthopedic surgeon by training, sold his first company to GE. So in the orthopedic imaging space. And then his second company called Mako over a 10 year journey went public and then sold to Stryker for $1.6 billion. So was, that was kind of a very successful 
uh, company. And kind of in the middle of that is when Maurice, who's on the board of trustees at Boston University, um, connected with a world-renowned spectroscopy researcher, Professor Irving Biggio, um, who had, you know, was involved in hundreds of publications on a type of spectroscopy, a, a field that he invented called elastic scattering spectroscopy. Um, and they had this idea of, you know, what if we can miniaturize the 30 pound microwave sized device that you've built in your, your labs at Boston university and kind of turn it into a handheld light pen that frontline providers and eventually maybe even consumers at home could use to quickly and effectively check for skin cancer. Uh, because right now there's about 13,000 uh, dermatologists, uh, including extenders like physician assistants uh, in the United States, but there's 500,000 primary care providers. Uh, and while, you know, all those primary care providers, um, you know, skin health, skin assessments is part of their training. It's part of their scope of practice. Um, but, you know, they certainly don't have anywhere near the training that dermatologists do, of course, since they're specialists. And so, you know, assessing and diagnosing skin conditions can be challenging for them, especially with skin cancer. It's very, very tricky to, to assess and, you know, accurately decide, okay, should, should this one be referred or biopsied or not? And so that's what we're really focused on, you know, uh, uh, developing a, you know, well, now developing a tool was for the first four years. Now we effectively have uh, developed and brought to market a, a one pound handheld, easy to use tool that um, uh, really uh, significantly improves skin cancer detection of these frontline providers. And, and we've shown that in a couple studies now um, and registered the, the device in Europe with the CE mark and also in Australia and New Zealand. So we have uh, commercial teams and, and we're actively selling in Australia and New Zealand, just announced the launch a couple months ago. Uh, we're not yet FDA approved. We're working through that process. Um, so that's, you know, kind of clear on our website and, and social media and whatnot, but we are actively uh, selling in Australia, and New Zealand, and we're approved and able to sell in Europe, just don't have kind of commercial infrastructure there. Um, so anyway, so I, I don't, any, any follow-up questions there? I know that was a kind of long. <laughs> no, I mean, I love it. No, I mean, it was funny because, you know, I worked at Ion Torrent. Uh, that's you know, Jonathan Rothberg who invented, you know, post light DNA sequencing. I was on the team that was in charge of manufacturing the the chips that you'd squirt the DNA on the, the semiconductor sequencing apparatus. And I remember or devices. And I just remember like, <laughs> it was my first experience being in a company where there was so many interdisciplinary folks. There was biology, surface chemistry, mechanical, I mean, it was this, yeah. comp I, I, it blew me away, bioinformatics. And then there was the semiconductor guys. There was the designers. There was me, the product engineer. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> it was insane how this stuff worked. And so anytime I see like a medical device or something where it's using like cool tech to help people do better yeah. um, and, and, and diagnose stuff, I'm just so fascinated by it. And yeah, we, we also, the what was called the PGM machine that what I worked on, uh, we went through the 510K clearance process with the FDA and boy, that took forever. Yeah, no, and we're, we're going we're gonna to be uh, regulated more intensely than a 510K. So uh, that, that's kind of why the FDA is, uh, is kind of a different uh, timeline than, than some of the other areas. But that's funny you, you mentioned uh, him because I, I, I knew uh, 
Jonathan was big in the kind of DNA sequencing and that had a successful company. I didn't realize that was a company that you had worked at. He, he actually, some of the other companies he's involved with now and uh, kind of was a big early investor. Um, one of them is actually a similar product that, that we're kind of hoping to emulate with its success called Butterfly Q. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so kind of handheld ultrasound. And now there's kind of a few on the market, but I think they've kind of shown... Yeah, I think the last valuation, this was years ago, was a billion dollars. And now there's a couple other successful kind of handheld, low-cost ultrasound products. And I think they've really shown the power of, you know, if you can bring, whether it's sophisticated training and or sophisticated technologies um, in a small, compact, easy-to-use format and really accessible, you know, in terms of training and or cost and usability, frontline providers, it can really be a game changer for healthcare. Uh, oh, for and sure. that's what, you know, we, we've spoken to their team about those similar interests and, and kind of goals and, and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been kind of great what they're doing and that a lot of other co- uh, companies like them and like, like us are, are aspiring to do. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you know, Ion Torrent got sold to Life Tech for like $725 million, you know, um, which yeah. was a huge, you know, okay. um, you know, one huge exit, but was interesting about DNA sequencing, not to bore everyone, but I'm going to bore everyone anyway, is that traditionally they use the technologies that are fluorescence, right? You know, they get a DNA, um, you know, recon, you know, combines with some, um, some enzymes and then it gives off light. They, they, it like glows different colors depending on what's being incorporated. Right. And so these machines are massive. They're like huge. I don't know things that have to go on vibration plates. I mean, it's a massive thing. And the thing that Ion Torrent had was this hand, quote unquote, hand, which you could, you could hold it in your hand, <laughs> move it around. Uh, but it, they called it the desktop DNA sequencer and mm. it had this bus. <laughs> it was so cool. They had the Ion Torrent sequencing bus and it was literally like an old uh, touring bus for some famous rock band. I don't even remember the name of the rock band but they put all these PGM machines in this bus and literally drove around to colleges to show you could sequence in a, in a van or in a, in a bus. Right. Which, oh, very was, cool. yeah. which was a huge, huge deal because see what, what's the problem with DNA sequencing. If it's, if you have to build this massive device with infrastructure on a vibration plane, it was, I remember the name of the company that was the main competitor. They're still around. I don't remember the, them off the top of my head, but, um, the power of this was you could literally like put it on your desk and then sequence, you know, DNA. So that was really, really kind of cool. And and the other thing that was really cool is that, uh, you know, Jonathan's just this genius and he's like, you can't keep up with the guy. <laughs> he just he has so many ideas and, and we would do these little cool little projects. Right. And one of the cool little projects I helped out with was uh, sequencing Martian DNA <laughs> which uh-huh. which was really cool. There's actually a paper I'm quoted in a paper. Uh, I think it's from MIT. We did we did this thing with MIT where they wanted to sequence the stuff on Mars. Well, right. we had to prove that our chip could handle all the, you know, uh, harshness of space. I think it's gamma rays and all that sort of stuff. And so we literally did a a study to make sure that we could if we if we could get a PGM in our chip to Mars, we could actually Would it work? Would it yeah. work? And it was really cool that like <laughs> I have a paper, like I have a paper 
I think we co-did. Yeah, we did it with MIT. <laughs> Martian DNA sequencing. I love it. Martian DNA sequencing. So sequencing, excuse me. So it'll happen, right? And so, but but the be- this is the beautiful thing about like what you're doing, what Jonathan's doing at Butterfly. Actually, I have some, I think I have some ion turret guys that are over there as well. Um, the beauty is that, um, you know, all of the technology that we have in our phone, like, the, you know, all the smartphones, all the computer, all the stuff that's, you know, been around for decades. I mean, I used to design semiconductor chips and, you know, we used to manufacture them. So the technology is all there to see it starting to now be applied to healthcare, where, you know, they're 20, 30 years behind the curve is just awesome because yeah. the more data you have, the better the diagnostic, the more often you get checked for skin cancer. Like as an example, my fiance now, her her stepfather gets skin cancer a lot, unfortunately, because he's got fair skin. And it's always this real, you know, it's a lot of anxiety. Is this, is that? And to know right away is just yeah. a huge huge relief. I mean, my mom, same way. She had this legion on her face. Is it skin? Can't they, you know, they're like, so this is a really important thing. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could kind of take us through sort of the, you know, I always say hardware is hard, <laughs> like you said, because it is, um, and not a lot of, um, not a lot of venture capitalists are investing in hardware companies now. So how was that process to actually go raise money and you know, kind of prove, that what you're doing works and cause it's a lot of money to, to, to yep. build hardware way more than software. I mean, you know, yeah, we, we've, we've raised around 17 million to date. Yeah. 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 So t- can you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. Yeah. Happy to speak to that. And, and, you know, I think one thing to kind of build on what you said a minute ago is, you know, it, it really is all about early detection uh, in terms of, you know, effectively addressing cancer generally and, and specifically for skin cancer, uh, you know, there's 5.5 million cancers diagnosed, uh, skin cancers diagnosed each year in the U.S. alone. Um, and the cure rate, if they're diagnosed early, uh, let's use melanoma specifically, the cure, uh, 99% of melanomas are curable if detected early. But the five-year survival rate drops to, you know, depending on which study and, and kind of what years are done, but basically between like 20 to 50% if it's diagnosed late, late in stage four. So it's all about early detection. And that's why, um, you know, and unfortunately, not only is it more common than all other cancers combined in the US, but it's also the number one cancer killer of young women, Yeah. Um, you know, affects can affect any age, any skin type, you know, it's more, more common in elderly people and those with lighter skin, but it, it can really affect any age, any skin type. So that's, um, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, now circling back to the investor question, unfortunately, it is a problem that a lot of people either have direct personal experience or with a family member, like you were describing, right? Uh, in terms of skin cancer and, and, you know, being a concern and something that afflicts them or a family member. So when it comes to fundraising, that is something I would say that's helpful, right? It is, it is a, a commonly relatable problem and, and accordingly kind of a, a large market opportunity uh, and a large unmet need to address. Um, that being said, there's also like a fair amount of sort of academic buzz and, and hype in the news. You know, there's, um, you know, about that kind of academic uh, papers, you know, not, not 
you know, commercial tools that, you know, make X and Y claims about how they're better than a dermatologist and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of one thing that often we, a challenge we faced with investors was kind of, you know, uh, overcoming a lot of the hyperbolic, you know, non-commercial, non-medical tools making, you know, claims in the press and, you know, kind of where, where when you're not regulated, right. It's easy to kind of make a, a lot of noise. Um, and so that's one thing that, you know, we, we had to deal with to use engineering speak, right. To, to convince people that, that we're actually signal and not just noise. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that totally. we're kind of, yeah, really onto something here that can actually be brought to market and be a game changer, um, relative to, you know, there's a lot of buzz like, Oh, can't you just diagnose skin cancer from your smartphone? It's like, well, no, there's actually not one device, uh, approved in the U S available right now that uses images to automatically assess skin cancer. There's not yeah. one. And it's but really, people hear about it a lot because yeah. it's like teledermatology. You right. know, they'll be like, right. oh, right. you can, you know, download an app, take a photo of a mole, share it with the dermatologist. Like, okay, well, that's not your smartphone diagnosing. That's the dermatologist. That's, <laughs> it's a dermatologist diagnosing. Yeah, you just you just seen the dermatologist on your yeah, phone. And just in a, a different way. Yeah. No, that's huge. I'm glad I'm so so glad you brought that up because a lot of times technology folks are trying to, you know, um, make, you know, make everything more efficient, which is great, but then they, they kind of don't realize the whole, um, history and legacy of biotech medical industry. I mean, you've got these doctors and nurses that have spent years and years training. You just can't replace them. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you can't make, and you can't make those claims because it's like, I, I it's funny because you see this in actually every industry that's trying to adopt smart technology to make quote unquote people's lives easier. I mean, there was a company that uh, I used to work with called Sutro that was monitoring pool water, like your pool water chemistry. Um, and there's lots of, there were lots of players in the market that were automatically monitoring and they literally their narrative, the, the other people's narrative was, oh, we're going to replace all the pool people in the pool stores and you don't have to ever go in. And clearly in that market, which is the same in, in healthcare, you can't do that. You have to be a net positive. You have to make yeah. make sure everyone is participating in the goodness, right? Because you're never going to replace a doctor. <laughs> it's just it's not going to happen, you know? Yeah. Yep. Well, and, that, and that's so literature shows and really what we focused on and certainly kind of, you know, home use and, you know, can there be a device and a you know, kind of, uh, uh, you can imagine, you know, like there's kind of the connected voice assistants now, and I know you're Correct. a big kind of connected home device guy, yeah. um, you know, will there in the future be a connected bathroom and, you know, Apple and Amazon and, and all the, you know, all the big tech companies are next competition. It's not with Siri and Alexa and whatnot. It's over, you know, the connected home health kit, right. And everyone in their bathroom has, you know, an oral cancer, a skin cancer, you know, their, their toilet is analyzing things, their sink and bathtub are analyzing things. Um, so, you know, certainly we think we, we, we could be an important player in this technology. It could be an important part of that future. Uh, but for the near term, what we're really focused on is those 500,000 U.S. primary care providers that um, do a, at least to some degree evaluate skin and are asked about skin by patients. And about a third of that is for potential skin cancer. So, 40% of primary care visits in the U.S. involve some kind of skin condition, and about a third of those are for potential skin cancer. So there's you know tens of millions of, of 
skin checks to some degree going on, but yeah. literature shows that um, primary care providers' sensitivity to skin cancer, so their ability to correctly decide, okay, yes, this could be skin cancer, so I'm going to refer it or biopsy it. Yeah. Right. Those are kind of that. That's their kind of clinical decision to make. Yeah. Um, their sensitivity to correctly doing that is somewhere between 54 to 88%. Yeah. So that's kind of, so they're missing, you know, they're deciding not to refer a biopsy when a patient points to the lesion or they notice the lesion, they're deciding not to refer a biopsy somewhere between 12 to 46% of skin cancers. Yeah. So what we've shown in our device, that's not, you know, we have a public, you know, uh, uh, well, there's tons of publications on elastic scattering spectroscopy and clinical studies, dozens of them. We've had one so far in skin. We're about to publish on a couple of recent studies and have shown that we're consistently in the 90 percentiles, which is in line kind of with the top end of dermatology in literature. Right. right. So that's kind of what we're focused on is trying to bring their evaluation and, and detection abilities of those 500,000 frontline providers in the US in line with that of dermatologists so they can more effectively check for, detect, and then refer on uh, patients that are, you know, potentially have cancer to these, uh, the dermatologists who can then make better use of their skill set by actually doing more involved evaluations and procedures like biopsies and treatment of skin cancer, instead of just, you know, it's like, oh, I'm worried about this new mole, you know, my wife or, you know, noticed, or I noticed, and so I'm gonna go straight to a dermatologist. It's like, well, you don't, you know, not only is it hard to do that because the average wait times are at least one to two months, but also, you know, a lot of the times it's not cancer. And did you really need to spend, yeah. you know, 10, 20 minutes with the dermatologist for that when you could have just done it as part of your annual checkup with your, you know, family doctor, internal medicine doctor? Yeah. No, I mean, my mom just went through this a month ago where primary care physician said, oh, you know, that lesion or on your face looks like cancer. It might be cancer. We need to get you in the dermatologist. It was two to three weeks later. And then the dermatologist is like, no, it's not cancer. <laughs> so, but like that intervening two weeks is pretty stressful. You know, I mean, she's, she's older, she's had cancer, two different types of cancer. So she's had breast cancer and colon cancer. So of course they had a heightened, heightened level of like, oh, okay, we, we need to check into this, but yeah. the amount of you know, cortisol wasted from all the whole family of going like, Oh really? Uh, not again. You know, like I just see this stuff is it's the same thing with the rapid test for COVID and like the testing infrastructure, which is, you know, we haven't as, as a world really gotten a handle on, on that. Uh, the more, you know, the better off you are and the more analytical you can be and the more data-driven you can be, of course, with the caveat of you have to be care, care and compassionate and have some compassion to people, but the quicker you can get the data, the better. I mean, it just saves one, it saves time, it saves money and it saves emotional strain. Um, yeah. And no, I, I agree. One, well, and, and it's funny. I think that that's certainly right. And, 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 and doctors have also said, you know, I would use this device, you know, some that feel they're more proficient with skin and, you know, they're like, you know, oftentimes I do feel pretty confident that a mole is, is concerning and that I need to refer the patient, but it's hard to convey that concern to the patient, right? Because yeah. I'm just kind of looking at it visually and like, you know, I don't have a test result. I don't have any kind of analysis or anything I can point to. And, you know, it's hard to find exact data on this, but the referral compliance anecdotally is terrible with, with skin cancer referrals. So, you know, uh, 
a couple studies in other countries showed that about 40% of patients referred from primary care to dermatologists don't go. Wow. Um, for potential <laughs> skin cancer. Yeah. Okay. And about, and about a third of those don't go because the reason for the visit was unclear, right? You can imagine doctors wow. saying, yeah, listen, I, you know, melanoma is rare. It looks weird. I, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure it's not melanoma. So you should go see a dermatologist, wow. right? And like you can see a patient then, and then they call the dermatologist, you know, you know, whatever your insurance is, 50 to hundred dollar copay. Yeah. They say, okay, yeah. In two months we can get you in. Yeah. You know, you have you to forget. take hours off work Yeah, and it just, it just doesn't happen. It, it, even if you make it to that point of like trying to schedule it, sometimes it doesn't happen. Whereas now, you know, the doctor sees an objective quantifiable risk result, the patient sees it. And, and, and some doctors have said, you know, even for patients that are, that I do think would follow through on the referral, I would have this test result so I could communicate that to the dermatologist yeah. to make sure they prioritize them. Yeah. Them. Good. You know what? I, that's actually a very astute point because a lot, especially in the U S of course, our healthcare system is a big hairball <laughs> mess of all yeah. sorts of like silly things that you just literally shake your head at and scratch your head at. I mean, you know, I talk a lot about this when, my late wife, Jane was going through leukemia treatment or bone marrow transplant and all this sort of stuff. And I was her kind of primary caregiver. I routinely was trying to figure this all out and, and they would prioritize her because she was of course a, a leukemia patient, cancer patient, but boy, there was some, in, some things where she actually um, had some lesions on her skin where the dermatologist actually took a biopsy of. Um, which, yeah, when you when your immune uh, yeah. immune compromised is is a big risk factor for getting yeah. yeah, and and it and but it turned out that you know she shouldn't have done that, um, and and not mm -hmm. not because not because it wasn't like what she thought she should do, but like the coordination, the care, and kind of like you know the the reason why I bring this up is like this device would have been like honestly would have prevented. Jane from having to go through that. And if, if you know anything about a biopsy, right, you cut stuff out. If you're, if you have low platelets, you bleed a lot more, it's hard to clot and you're in a lot more pain. So it, it's, it's just the more non-invasive clinical diagnostic tools that are, you know, can, can prioritize and triage things that need to happen is just going to be a a net positive to the world. I mean, I can't stress this enough. If you've ever been part of the healthcare system, if you've ever had a loved one that is like wondering if they've got a cancer diagnosis or some other wacky thing, um, it really is a very, it's a stressful situation. It, it, it's, it, this compliance thing is so spot on, man. Like it's, when you got to wait, a, when you got to wait a week, <laughs> people are going to be like, really, I'm not going to do that. You know, yeah. um, and, and a month or two and a yeah. month. It's crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, we, and we they've talked, shown in, I think in Chicago, there's some areas where it's as much as four to six months. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, insane. Right. So, and, and, and before we started recording, we also were talking about another company that's similar to what you guys, well, not similar, but one called Tito care who, uh, who is building a device that's like a remote, like diagnostic tool that caregivers can, you know, get trained on and, you know, um, 
send the data to the doctor so that, I mean, especially now during COVID, like, so you don't have to go into the doctor, they can get the information that, that they need. And, you know, yeah, they do that their tool. Yeah. Connected device. Right. I think it's got yeah. a video for, for kind of live physician interaction, but thermometer attachment, otoscope for ear. Yeah. I think there's two or three others too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a live core, a live core, sorry, with their Carta device where you can look to see if you've got AFib or if you're going through an AFib thing, you, they yeah. can take an EKG, like how much, you know, I, I can, I can only imagine how good that feels for a patient. I mean, actually used to Jane and I actually used to work for a live core a long time ago, help, helping them oh, with, their PR, awesome. with their, with their PR and marketing stuff. But like, how cool is that? Like that, yeah. that's the thing that, that gets me so excited about this sort of stuff, because although the healthcare industry has a strong, this is the way we've always done it attitude, the next generation coming up, companies like yours that are doing these great, I mean, the science is just phenomenal. It's the same kind of stuff we were doing at Ion Torrent. If you, know, you, you kind of understood how this all worked, it's like sci-fi to the next level, you know, so cool to see all these smart people trying to solve it. And, yeah. and so real, yes. real life tricorders, right? That's yeah. Kind of, well, that's what, uh, that's what, that's what yeah. Jonathan's trying to do with, uh, with his stuff, right? He wants, yep. he wants yep. to be that. When they tri- had that X prize, I, I don't know what ended up coming out of it, but I remember there's some companies that had really hit a lot of the development milestones in terms of, you know, we're able to non-invasive assess X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, there's a lot of companies out there making, making good progress. So uh, yeah, yeah, that, that Star Trek future may, may not be too far off, you know, hopefully no. it's a, a decade or two, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Agreed. And I think you guys are definitely going to be part of that because I mean, you know, without getting into the, like the tech, because <laughs> we'll probably bore a lot of people. Um, it, it's just super cool to see a lot of these um, things that are in laboratories. They're huge, massive machines sort of getting miniaturized to be handheld. And so what, what have been some of those challenges for you guys to sort of miniaturize these things that they exist. I mean, I think in, yeah. when I was reading your website, it's like, well, yeah, you could go to a lab. It's a desktop machine or a machine as big as a sofa and it does this, but to put it in your hand, to yep. be like less than a pound or a pound, to have the tool, this powerful tool. Um, how, how did that come about? And like, God, it must've been just such a monumental scientific endeavor. It was, yeah. And, and to kind of tie back to your earlier investor question, um, you know, fortunately, with Maurice and Chris having started the company in 2009 and, and having already had, you know, like, like uh, Jonathan with Ion Torin and Butterfly IQ now and others, you know, they've had a couple of multi-billion dollar uh, success companies. And so, you know, uh, the term kind of super angels certainly applies to them. Um, so, you know, a lot of the first few million and funding came from them and kind of other, you know, business and investment partners that, that have worked together for the last kind of, you know, 10, 20 years on various uh, medical device companies. So I, I, I do think kind of, you know, people that have been successful in the space, right? Like the, the company you talked about, Jonathan, and then the other ones, yeah, Butterfly Q, et cetera, um, you know, same kind of thing, right? There's a, that one big success with Ion Torrent and then a few companies that come out of that. So similar uh, for us, you know, I think Mako Surgical was having sold a striker for 1.6 billion. There's been a handful of companies. So OrthoSensor, which you can tell the similarity in the name, right? OrthoSensor, Derma Sensor, 
So ortho sensors raised over a hundred million dollars over the last thing, 15 years. They just sold uh, to Strike Rack, which was announced two weeks ago. Um, they're based in Fort Lauderdale. We're based down the road in Miami. Uh, there's a handful of other companies, some that are also in Florida that these guys are involved in. Um, so that's, that's, I think, just your point that there's not many VCs now that are investing in med tech. I think folks that have been very successful in the space have really stepped in because they do know, know that pathway well and kind of know a lot of the right people and, and kind of what's needed to make those successful. So, so that's kind of been, been um, you know, a, a big, so that and kind of the Miami tech ecosystem, which is growing, especially now with the, you know, a lot of the talk about uh, folks from New York and California coming here and also to Texas. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, open arms for them. You know, I was speaking with some San Francisco. <laughs> I was speaking with some San Francisco friends and it was funny. And because uh, I was like, oh, you know, we're, we're going to take some of your guys, uh, VCs and talent and whatnot. Like, yeah, you know, maybe like five, 10% or something. Right. But I think ultimately most will stay here. I was like, yeah, but five, 10% of thousands of VCs is huge. Yeah. If, you know, it's even huge. a quarter of those come to Florida, Florida has like seven VCs. Yeah. So totally. you know, 5% of a thousand, you know, the, that you'll, that'll like triple our, our investor ecosystem. Right. I mean, that's a huge, huge deal for Florida. So, um, so yeah, in, in terms of the miniaturization, you know, we, we basically lost a year in terms of development timelines, just from, you know, kind of a, a I don't even say it was wrong, just a, a suboptimal development approach. So, you know, the type of spectroscopy we use is called elastic scattering spectroscopy. And basically how it works is, there is a light source that emits hundreds of wavelengths of light, right? So we see an RGB and three wavelengths. So it emits hundreds of wavelengths of light and the algorithm measures the backscattering of all that light. So how of the photons, right? Like I think of it like a little camera flash out of the tip of a pen. That's how our device works. So it's measuring around 500 microns of tissue. So like half a millimeter in depth. And how that light scatters back to the tip of the, the device, uh, the fiber optic probe tip, it then the spectrometer assesses, all right, how much light came back and an algorithm runs saying, okay, this much light came back at these various wavelengths. Is that indicative of malignant or benign cellular and subcellular characteristics? Yeah. So wow. the large 30 pound device at Boston University kind of emitted these hundreds of wavelengths of light. And the idea was, all right, we're just going to use low cost LEDs, right? Like our right. TVs and whatnot. Yeah. And we're going to put those in a little light pen. Like, yep. you know, it's literally going to be the size of like, you know, a pen to use to write with. Yep. It's going to cost $20 to make. It's going to be great. You know, super <laughs> simple. And so we, so we did that. So we did that. And, you know, the idea was six months, maybe 12 months to develop it. And have it yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. Like why, yeah. you know, why not? Like, how why not? Yeah. Like entrepreneurs, we're, we're all delusional. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so that's kind of when I joined, that was kind of the plan. And as I, you know, engineer by background, technically, but a bioengineer and, you know, I hadn't really, I hadn't been an engineer as my job. Right. So, yeah. 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 And so I told the, I told the board and the, and the founders, I was like, you know, I think this is going to be a little more complicated than, than you guys were thinking. Uh, we should probably hire a head of product that actually has some experience in this stuff. So, so, so we did. And, and he, he then came to the same conclusion as me, which is like, you know, I think we need to bring in a medical device development firm that has specific expertise in optics yep, and yep, miniaturization yep. and design yep. for manufacturing and all this stuff. Yep. So yeah, so we kind of part, so that led approach, 
eventually kind of being able to bundle all those light fibers together and kind of make all that work, the, the cost and complexity and the clinical performance issue is because now you're only scanning and analyzing a few wavelengths instead of yep. hundreds. Yep. So ultimately what we decided to do like a year later was, you know, uh, you know, the, the cost complexity and clinical performance will, you know, it's not worth doing this kind of miniaturized approach or sorry, doing this what called discrete wavelength approach where you're just doing a few wavelengths. Let's go back to the broadband approach where it's hundreds of wavelengths, mm-hmm. but we just miniaturize the whole system. Yep. So that's what we basically spent the next two years doing. Um, and what ultimately led to the product we have now. Yeah. I used to, uh, I used to be at a company called Cypress Semiconductor, which is where I did all my semiconductor stuff. And there was a division that got bought <laughs> which was called silicon light machines and silicon light machines built a laser projection system that uh was like high def it was this digital projection for like movies it's just these guys were like far i mean they were so smart it was just it was insane <laughs> they started off doing um what were basically light switches for the internet so you know fiber optic in the internet a lot of times fiber yeah. optic goes in, then they convert it to electrical, then they switch it, and then they send it off down the thing. Well, they did an all light basically switch. So, oh, this beam needs to go to you know Kentucky, boom, we send it that way, right? Um, but they <laughs> we uh they did another project that I was on. It was called it was an optical mouse, which um they use something called speckle. I don't know if you know what speckle is. No, I don't. Okay, so um, a laser, which can typically be monochromatic, you know, a certain wavelength, um, when a laser bounces off any rough surface and rough surface is rough to the wavelength of the laser, it will shoot back a speckle pattern, which is random, but deterministic, like where it'll go. Mm, and interesting. If okay. Yeah. Kind of and like if you're building, now. yeah, it's really cool. So if you're building like an optical mouse, th- there's two ways that they do it. They use an LED shine light on, they take an image of the surface and then figure out which way the optical mouse is moving. Or you can shoot a laser and then measure the speckle pattern with um, basically um, photo sensors. So uh, like a, like a, it's like an image, like a, imagine like a cross or a tr- triangle. So <laughs> there was a yeah. guy at, at this company and I don't remember his name. He's such a sweet guy. He's such a great guy. So, and these guys were just PhD in like the most, they're so bright. He was the speckle guy in <laughs> his job because see speckle in a projection system will give you, will make it look fuzzy, right? Speckle is this stuff that you just don't want anywhere on a projection yeah. system. So his job was to figure out how to get rid of speckle. And, and, and he wrote his PhD thesis on this. Oh, and so speckle guy. Speckle guy, right? But he's such a great guy. I mean, all these guys were just like way like every time I'd go there, because I was helping like market this thing. We called it the um the speckle mouse. Uh, was called uh what did we call it? Um uh, ovation. That was the code name for it. I think it's I don't think they I don't know if they do it any now anymore, but I just remember going to their office and sitting down with these guys. And I just like my mind would just be bent. I mean, I was, you know, working on like non-volatile Sonos technology and Bluetooth wireless chip. I mean, like I kind of, you know, I, I knew the lingo, like I could design this stuff and build semiconductors, but 
this light stuff. I had like sitting there like deer in the headlight when it would start like, and this is how it works. And I'm like, whoa, okay. So I can only imagine you guys like shooting a light at this cancer thing, this, this thing, and then like bound, you know, whatever this analyzing, the, analyzing the it, reflectance. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's so like, there's so many of those. I mean, yeah, I think that's what, what Jonathan's company does, but does it with like, like it analyzes the, like the molecules in the air that you breathe. It's some, I don't remember exactly, but there was another company doing something similar. They were trying to, uh, they were trying to capture the vibration of atoms <laughs> because if you, if you can sample it like terahertz, you can figure out the composition of the air because atoms vibrate at different, you know, frequencies and you just, your mind just starts to <laughs> completely like, okay, this is too Star Trek for me. So uh, <laughs> how, how has this been um, just from a personal level, you know, like, running this thing, trying to figure it all out, getting it to market. I mean, this is a, it's going to help a yeah. lot of people. Like how, how do you, how yeah. do you keep, how do you kind of keep going? I mean, I know it could be challenging. Obviously there's, yeah. there's, you know, you had to bring new people in. It was a, a year delayed. How, how do you yeah. kind of stay motivated for it? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh tough sometimes. Right. I mean, it's um, you know, obviously investors as, as part of them getting involved, right. You kind of sign up for milestones and, timelines and whatnot. And and so when you fall behind those, you know, you start being concerned for, for the vision and that, you know, will it be successful and the employees you've hired and the investors money, you know, is, is it all, is that going to go for not and, and the company fold? And so, you know, when those kind of challenges come up, it's tough, you know? And um, uh, I think at the end of the day, kind of that guiding vision among everyone on our team of, you know, ultimately what we're doing here, you know, everyone needs salaries and, and there's kind of those, those basics. And, you know, we also, uh, uh, folks have equity also. So they're, they're, you know, incentivized for that, that long-term success of the company. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the knowledge that the product that we're developing, um, is ultimately, you know, could help thousands or, or tens of thousands uh, of patients, um, you know, and, and detect cancer earlier and, and save lives and, you know, kind of all the potential benefits there are, I think is a big motivator of what, you know, gets you through those challenges. Um, and, you know, for me, I think there's also the, you know, the diversity of the the things you encounter both, you know, intellectually, it's like, okay, you know, one meeting you're, you're listening to the, you know, a dozen engineers and, and developers talk about a lot of that stuff you were just talk, talking about, right. The photon scattering and well, you know, all this, which even as an engineer, you know, is really hard for me to even understand what they're saying, you know, certainly uh, not contributing much. Right. But so, you know, I was on a lot of those calls in the early days, more just kind of listening in to try to keep up with what, what the engineers were doing. And then the next call it's, you know, with the medical group and, and tackling, all right, you know, how's the study ongoing what kind of challenges are there? And, and then your, you know, next calls with your commercial people and, and reimbursement folks and kind of thinking through that. So definitely the the kind of intellectual diversity uh, is interesting. And, you know, I, I grew up uh, playing tennis also, uh, which, you know, as an individual sport and played in college at, at Brown. And, you know, I think that's something that has kind of prepared me kind of, you know, indirectly sort of for being an entrepreneur is because, you know, you, you go out there, you're all by yourself, you do your best. And, you know, a lot of times you lose and you just have to, 
you know, whether it's later that day or the next day, you know, when you're at a tournament, you know, pick yourself back up and, and just get right back out there and try hard again. And, you know, it's uh, not necessarily on a, a daily basis. You, you kind of feel like you lost, right? But, you know, you kind of have little setbacks here, you know, weekly or near weekly. And sometimes there's major setbacks, like, you know, a, a big investor you thought was going to participate that doesn't, a new competitor, a, you know, concerns with the study readout or, you know, there's, there's all like, like we said, the product setback, right. We just, you know, basically shelve something that we had been working on for a year and invested tons of time and money in to basically start from scratch. Right. So um, I think kind of culmination of all those things. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of the interest in, in sort of building um, has certainly been an appeal. And, and at the end of the day, you know, wanted to have a career that helped others. Like I mentioned, you know, my family members are all kind of educators or involved in, in people development, I would say it was kind of a common theme. Um, but I was more uh, so attracted to that, you know, my career kind of being centered around helping others. But especially with, with also a, a degree in economics, undergrad was kind of attracted to the idea of creating something that was a bit more scalable in terms of uh, how, how to help others versus directly helping them as an educator or doctor, for example. Um, so, you know, I think that was something that, you know, for example, as a teacher, right, you can help, you know, X number of students per year as a teacher, but if you develop a new online learning platform, um, you know, if it's successful, right, let's say you have, you know, there's video-based content, it's like, well, one teacher could potentially reach thousands or hundreds of thousands of students a year, right? Yeah, like Khan Academy. Exactly, yeah. So I think it's like that kind of, you know, scalability or sort of exponential reach of, you know, if you develop a successful new tool, right? So kind of the the sort of engineer business side and, you know, uh, economics thinking, I think really uh, attracted me to those kind of, you know, sort of uh, building something new that, that could really have the opportunity to, to affect way more effect and benefit way more people than, you know, me just as an individual directly helping people uh, could have. Yeah, no, that's very, that's a solid why. And, uh, you know, I think that's a great place to end. Cody, really appreciate your time. I really love what you're doing. I think it's so important. I hope more people will do what the th- kind of things you're trying to do. And I also hope for all you VCs listening, people will invest more in hardware companies. It is harder. It takes more <laughs> time. Right. It's more money, but it's so worth it. So, Cody, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, been great, great speaking with you. and. Uh, uh, yeah, all the best on, uh, continuing to, uh, uh, do great podcasts like this and, and get the word out about, about innovative new, uh, companies and, and technologies. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. 
I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.